Hey, our national conversation about conversations about race is back. Hi, I'm Anna Holmes, and I'm a new addition to the podcast, and now we're here every Friday. Subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and then grab the phone of the person next to you and subscribe them too. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 1st, 2016, the Make Mexico Great Again edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in Philadelphia. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. <laughs> and John Dickerson is home again, home again, jiggity jig, back with me in Washington, D.C. John of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I'm so happy to be back. Were you on vacation? or you? I just... was. I took uh, actual days of vacation. It was amazing. Um, did you not do Face the Nation last week? Or you no, did I did it. <laughs> no, I just <laughs> took it some time off at the beginning of the week. I mean, let's not go overboard here. Uh, but uh, but God it was... Forbid. Yeah, no, it was amazing. On this week's GabFest, Trump's visit to Mexico ends without payment for his wall but was it a triumph anyway then does the breakup of the huma abedin anthony weiner marriage have any political ramifications is it gross for us to talk about it that's yeah. another question <laughs> no and yes okay that was quick <laughs> so we'll have a different time <laughs> no we're going to talk about it then uh you've asked we've answered we will take our first swing at the down ballot senate races you've been clamoring to hear some Dickersonian, Basilonian analysis of what's going to happen in the non-Trump-Clinton race in November. And so we're going to start with the Senate. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, the EpiPen controversy. When is it all right to shame companies into better behavior? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. So Donald Trump didn't apparently ask for payment for the wall. Uh, but details, details, his quickie visit to Mexico and to President Peña Nieto was, by most measures, I think, a, a success. We'll take the speech afterwards. We can talk about differently. Uh, Trump showed up. He Why was are you calling it a success? I'm about to get to that part, Emily. He showed up. <laughs> He was treated. I question he was your treated, premise. He, he was treated. Up. He was treated presidentially and deferentially by the leader of the country. He had insulted, mocked, and derided. And low bar. Yeah, it's a low bar. That's we can he talk about it. I almost, himself. I almost named the show the Grady on a Curve uh, edition. Um, no matter that he wiggled about his major policy proposals, he tried to shrug off his poisonous statements about Mexico and Mexicans, and then returned in the evening to give a speech filled with all the viciousness of the immigration proposals he'd been making throughout the campaign. He wouldn't tell Peña Nieto to pay for the wall, but his first tweet this morning was, Mexico will pay for the wall. So, uh, But meanwhile, Peña Nieto says that he told Trump that he was not paying for the wall. That's a key detail. Well, we're going to discuss all that. Yeah. He's still trying to introduce the I damn know, but thing. but David's like summarizing. Oh, he's, 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 out, he's like, setting up a straw man. It's framing. It's framing, <laughs> Emily. I'm, it's now, I've set something up, and now you can come and wallop it. You can go, you can go take, take, uh, take some Emily Bazelon thunder. So, Emily, was the, trip the a, was, was the trip a success? He didn't get into I mean, a fist like fight. He, said, he didn't say anything about rapists did, while in Mexico. 
He didn't wet himself. Right. He stood on a stage with a, a, the leader of um, our important ally and friend, Mexico, and didn't, like, humiliate himself. And so if that's the measure for success, then I guess so. But it seems to me that if you come Headline, out of meeting Headline, Baslan like that, calls it great success. No, I don't, because I think if you come out of a meeting with this head of state and you say, oh, we didn't talk about who's paying for this wall, and the other guy says, yeah, I told you that I'm not paying for it, then that shows that your diplomacy skills are lacking and that, you know, this whole kind of farce you've created that you're somehow going to insist on this impossibility and that this is a real thing, it's just not true. John, is it your sense that the, the optics were were if, of the trip? We can talk about the speech in a minute. But of the trip were okay for Trump. Well, um, I will embrace your uh, framing only for the purposes of this academic exercise, <laughs> because in reality, that's obviously not the way it works. Because the, one of the central questions of the campaign is. Uh, who is the real Donald Trump? And that's a question that both campaigns are engaging in. The Trump campaign, since he won the primaries, has had a series of false starts about uh, Paul Manafort saying that he's going to moderate in uh, in the general election. Donald Trump saying, I can be as presidential as I want to be. Uh, then Trump saying, no, I'm not going to pivot, which then turned out to be the announcement of the pivot. And this whole murkiness about what his ultimate immigration policy uh, was on the 11 million undocumented immigrants was about the specific policies of an important issue, but it was also about the larger question of how much can he be different? How much does he want to be different? How much is his difference cosmetic to appeal to a certain portion of the electorate and so forth and so on? So the question of the ultimate Donald Trump who exists after this series of events and whether you can reframe the image of a candidate with a single press conference in Mexico is the large question of the debate. So you can't separate the speech that came right after the the event that he took. But if you want to look at it purely as an event period event, it was a success for what they wanted to get out of it, which was to show that Donald Trump could Hillary Clinton said he will go overseas and embarrass us. So here he went overseas. He didn't embarrass anybody in the in the press conference. But I mean, let's be clear about what exactly happened. He stood in his suit next to the president of Mexico and read some lines and did all that very well. And given given the fact that he's in a race in which people don't think his biggest problem is people don't think he can inhabit the presidency, that's a political help to him. And he's running against a candidate with severe challenges. And so that's a help to him. But in the end, whether it matters in overcoming his big challenge, especially given the speech that he gave right afterwards, and the fact that there, are, the notion of two Donald Trumps itself is part of his problem with those portion, those voters in the portion of the Republican electorate that he's having trouble with, I don't think it actually did that much in the end in the final calculation to uh, to actually help him. So, Emily, let's turn to the speech. So he comes back from Mexico on uh, Wednesday evening, gives a gives a speech, which is essentially a regurgitation of all that he's been saying in his stump speeches so far. There's going to be a wall. There, we're going to deport millions and millions and millions of people. That's more or less his immigration policy. It, it was not. It's it's not uh, particularly softened. It wasn't. It didn't seem to have uh, changed based on his uh, extensive tour of one room in Mexico. You know, what did you make of that speech? Um, I thought it was alarming, both for the reasons you've said and also for its incredibly kind of aggressive, angry delivery. At one point, I, I was watching it on mute and, you know, red in the face, like 
just so um, belligerent in its stance. And then the third thing that I noticed, and John, tell me if this is new or not, but this idea that, like, I'm going to tell you the truth about our immigration system. There could be 3 million, there could be 30 million people here. So again, it's an undermining of the truth-telling function of the government, the idea that, you know, you, the people, are being lied to about the extents of this problem, and I'm going to come in and undo all of this um all of these, this tissue of lies, I'm going to shred them all. The sort of conspiracy theorist part of it, I think I might, I don't know. I mean, you, there are many things to choose among about what's like the worst part of this, but that part I find deeply unsettling. And I and, didn't remember hearing that before. And actually, just to, just to add to that, John, before you take it, is that one of the, one of the pieces of that is basically if you walk outside in any American city, you're probably going to be murdered by an illegal immigrant. Right. This constant invocation of the lurid of the lord and this idea that that on every street corner is a is a mexican a, you know a mexican drug executioner who just wants to kill you bears no resemblance and that's not to say people haven't been killed by illegal immigrants people are killed in america all sorts of ways by all sorts of people and and people who are here illegally commit some of those murders although not very many the lies about that and the the creation of fear and the fanning of the fear around that i think is a disgusting thing that he does anyway so if to your point john so yeah so if politics is about two things a battle of ideas and then a battle of turf what he's doing by um uh, upping the statistics and creating the sense of panic and peril is trying to keep more of the debate on his turf so if you're terrified by the advancing horde you're going to be terrified by the advancing horde and whatever somebody's saying about, you know, uh, mental health legislation. Yeah, that's all fine and good, but we got to stop the people who are coming to get us. And so this is an attempt to keep a larger portion of the conversation on the turf that he's best at or he thinks he's best at and that he has the most immediate remedy for. So that's about turf management as opposed to policy. That's what that's about. And both candidates often try, you know, Give, I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton with her alt-right speech last week was trying to change the turf. I mean, she was trying to do, again, what she did in response to his speech in Arizona, which is not let the pivot happen. But she also wants the turf of the debate to be about white nationalists and not about anything else. But I think going back to your point about red in the face, Emily, I think that's an interesting uh, idea because we have to figure out. Well, I guess before I say that, one thing that just should be noted and that's striking is that the clock is ticking. Voting starts in in October, October 3rd in Ohio. It starts even earlier in some places that aren't in play. Like there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done by a campaign in the 12 battleground states that are in play. And you could argue maybe there are only five battleground states in play as far as the Trump team in terms of having an actual shot. Florida, Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. In a traditional sense... A candidate would spend all their time there talking about the issues that try to get at that portion of the existing coalition that he's not doing well with, which is the suburban Republicans, college-educated women in the Republican, and then reaching out to that fringe of voters who are either moderates or even who are who are available to him, like in the in the ring outside of the first two closest to the candidate, if you think of these as circles uh, and, and with the candidate at the center. He's still talking about immigration, which is like he's got those voters he picked up in Arizona and that he was speaking to in Arizona. Like that was the primary. There's a sense in which this feels like it's really strange that he's having to kind of rediscuss his signature policy proposal in a way that doesn't really reach out at all to the voters he's having trouble with this late in the game in a state that shouldn't be in play. The Clinton team is putting up ads in Arizona. 
to try and fake him out. I don't think they're really contesting Arizona, but they're trying to pin him down in a state that he should never even be in at this point in the race. Arizona should be locked and done for for Trump. So that's really weird. But just this, just on this final point, Emily, is the, your red-faced point is what he the reason he went to Mexico was to fix the red-faced problem was to was to send a signal to those voters wary about him and who don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton at all and are looking for a pretext to vote for him because they really don't want to vote for Clinton and they've been Republicans all their life and they care about issues that they think a Republican president can can address. And yet they they just don't they find him too volatile. And so go to Mexico, look, you know, look like you can inhabit the office. But then the red face, just in terms of image for image, undoes the work that was done in Mexico. Right. And it's as if it's irresistible to him, like he has to get Ann Coulter back on his side. And so to do that and to, to persuade his base that he didn't actually vacillate when he seemed to be vacillating he makes this incredibly angry speech. And I got to hope that all this demonizing of actual people who live in the United States of America work hard and are an important part of our economy is not going to play well with those Republican suburban voters because it's extreme. All right, we'll leave it there. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about a really fun thing Slate and Second City are doing to make this horrific election season actually bearable. Slate and Second City have teamed up on a live show called Unelectable You, the Second City's completely unbiased political review. Wouldn't you like to take this whole election process and rip it apart with your bare hands? Now you can let Second City and Slate do it for you. Unelectable You is a fast-paced combination of sketch, improv, music, and multimedia that takes a hard-hitting look at our election process. From breaking down Hillary and Donald to exploring the media circus to looking at ourselves to see if we're the problem, Unelectable You examines what it means to be electable or not. The show has been running in Chicago for the past month. John did a cameo with them in Chicago last week so he can vouch for its excellence. And now it's hitting the road with September shows in Ohio, Iowa, North Carolina, Missouri, and lots more places. And it's going to be live here in D.C. at the Kennedy Center on October 14th and 15th, where you may just get to see a Gabfester guest appearance or two. For tour information and tickets, visit unelectableu.com. Now on to our next topic, which is not comic, but it is definitely tragic comic. 
poor, poor, poor Huma Abedin. She made her bed and then Anthony Weiner lay in it and sexted with another woman. Weiner and Abedin's very public, too public for her, not public enough for him, marriage seems to have ended this week as the New York Post released private sexually charged exchanges between Weiner and a a woman he was um, flirting with who turned out to be a Trump supporter, an NRA supporter. It is, of course, the third such incident in the past five years for Weiner. The first one cost him his house seat. The second one cost him his mayoral bid. The third one apparently has cost him his marriage as well as his his remaining jobs as a pundit. Emily, one point that we should get in hard first. It is disgusting that the New York Post published private sexual images of Wiener. It is this is revenge porn essentially, isn't it? These were not things that he was sharing publicly. This is a private exchange with another adult who chose to apparently leak this to the press. Yeah. And the other thing is the image of his child next to him while they did, you know, blur the child's face is really creepy and upsetting. Really bothered me. On the other hand, it's really hard to feel like Anthony Weiner is a victim of anyone but himself because it was so entirely predictable that this would happen to him. Um, But who's saying he's a victim? He's not a victim of anyone but himself, Emily. But like, wait, just pause. Hold on. I'm surprised. I thought this was a I was just teens up for you to to slam it. It's 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 this is a private. (laughs) These were private exchanges that he was having with someone. This person for whatever purposes, the woman involved gave them 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 in a way that is humiliating and and terrible. And if he weren't if and Wiener is effectively a private citizen. Um. And for the New York Post to publish it, for the New York Post to publish it, for the New York Post to publish that and publish it with a child and to do her bidding, to do the bidding of a, of a, of a, of a woman who wants to humiliate him, it's, it's revenge porn. I don't see why it's not revenge porn. It, this is not no, it we- is revenge porn. But yeah. right. But on the other hand, you're talking about someone who is a public figure. Absolutely. I think the notion that he you know, is a private citizen is actually ludicrous and who has set himself up for exactly this kind How, of. Exposure. Why is the notion that so, he's a private citizen ludicrous? I don't even agree with that because he is the he's, most publicity minded hounding person like on the planet. Well, he he's a he's a person who seeks publicity, but he's a private citizen, and he's not engaged in oh, any. Pu- he's mean, not engaged in any public. It's no different publishing a, a a a porny picture of him than it is publishing a porny picture of one of us. And would you say that we're we're yeah, public but I figures? I don't really think we. Well, I mean, we haven't made. Our, you know, look, this it's hard because he was wronged, but he also set himself up to be taken down as a complete hypocrite or as a repeat offender, as a liar. And he has totally been out there seeking publicity. I mean, he talked to Mark. He's been on TV. He is, seems addicted to attention. I mean, if I, like, it's hard not I to I repeat, just, like, the interview, the interview that he did with Mark Leibovich, the interview he did with Mark Leibovich, John did a similar interview two weeks before that. John sat for a similar interview. Yeah, but John you, is not out there like humiliating himself. John is out there trying to sell his book, no, which is Wiener is humiliating. Wiener is humiliating himself. Wiener is humiliating himself because he is doing things in private which are wrong and stupid and narcissistic and and destructive to his marriage. But that is not to say that those are public things. Those are things that he is doing. Well, I think. Sure, but how many I, times I think it's, do you have to get caught? Before you start to have some responsibility for the fact that you're putting yourself in this really compromised position. 
Um, well, how I could he really I think being have imagined that he, this wasn't going to happen? Like, of course this was going to happen. He doesn't know this woman. He, there's no reason for him to trust her. And the idea that the media would be interested in Anthony Weiner's sexting seems like, uh, uh, how could this not have come out? Well, I, I'm not saying that the media wouldn't be interested in that he wasn't reckless and stupid and, and he obviously shouldn't put his trust in people. I am saying that the what this woman did and what the New York Post did is morally wrong and reprehensible. But is that a standard you think the New York I mean this is the New York Post. The New York Post is there right. are colleagues. I like, don't know. What what does that mean? No, I mean they have a different standard. Well, they're a tabloid. Right. Like this is what they do. They sell newspapers. Yeah. Right, but I think it, if you if you if you imagine that, that there was some other person if this was a a woman a less ludicrous figure, and then they published a, this this photograph with the child in it in that way that people would be full of condemnation. I think because it's Anthony Weiner and because he's ridiculous, um, people are glad to have it when it's wrong. I it's just like- I've, I mean I'm I think it's fine that their marriage is broken up. I think it's good that Huma Abedin knows what a sleazeball he is. I think he's a he's a he's a ridiculous, think- terrible. Maybe narcissistic person but i don't think that the way this unfolded was fair to him or that we should be we as both as journalists and as human beings should be like yay this is out well, i'm nobody, glad it's out yeah no i don't think anybody's saying yay or at least i'm not saying yay i guess i'm you're asking a press ethics question a press ethics question and a obligation of us as citizens to not just the press but the, what this woman did I mean, what the what the person who was well, receiving these sex? Well, I think also you're asking did. us to empathize with Wiener, which is a fair thing to do. And I have struggled on this show in the past with empathizing with Wiener. There's something about him that makes it really hard for me to to see things or care about his point of view. I I admit that I looked at that picture and thought about first his kid growing up and having this like weird footnote role in this like yucky scandal, and then I thought about Huma Abedin and you know her effort to work on this marriage and stay in it in a way that was kind of mystifying to me, but I didn't judge. And then the effect on her career. like So I do see that you have a point here. And I think there is something telling about why and how it is we don't see from Anthony Weiner's point of view the harm that he's doing to himself in a way that makes this immediately I didn't think of the term revenge porn, which I should have. Well, I think, but I mean, we all can agree, right, that profiting off the weaknesses of others is a way to make money and embarrass a person for purely those reasons and nothing having to do with public policy or public import is wrong. I think we all can agree that. Yeah, no, I don't think any of the three of us would have. Right. So, I mean, that's that's your, right, and that's David's essential question. I mean, not only would we, obviously none of the three of us would have pushed public on those photos. Would do you think that the public good in any sense was served by this being published? No, no. It's just that I can't get all like agitated about it because it seems so predictable. To but isn't me that because he put himself directly in harm's way? But isn't Maybe that why my made, problem? Why this is the important case? Because where. Uh, there must be some legal term for this, where the facts are so, you know, where you have no sympathy for the person being wronged, and yet, nevertheless, the standard should still hold, right? right? Isn't the, aren't those the te- aren't yes, those the perfect like the, te- the, yeah. like the flag burner, the flag burner? Yeah, it's like the opposite of bad facts make bad law. Yeah, yeah, like you're so you have this the, a fact pattern that pushes the boundaries, and yet you uphold the standard. Yeah, sure. Right. And also the um, 
And there's also got to be an expression for building a wall around anybody misinterpreting the case that David's making for sympathy for Anthony Weiner. I mean, and and it goes beyond what he's done here that goes beyond his simple issues is the bringing in of his child. The Internet lives on. Right. And the Internet lives on. And that that child is going to have to live on in a world in which he is a part of this now. That's a special awfulness here that does suddenly, as I talk about it, feel like this is not just the so what about what if you could make this case on the post behalf this is no longer just about this is about child abuse this is no longer a guy being weird online this is about a guy who is so weird online that he is putting his own child in the photograph and if this was phil smith you would be outraged and think he is putting a child in a position that no child should be put in. That's a case you could make. It's a case. I think that's a that's a not out of outlandish case. Uh, they, the Post weakens that argument by publishing the photo with the child. You could totally refer to it and you could send it to the cops. But if you're talking about what, who's abusing the child, the Post is is abetting that abuse. Uh, that's a good point by putting it out there. By putting it out there. That's yeah, true. Right. Yeah, excellent point. Right. I mean, you're distributing. Yeah. No, I was like, uh, Yeah. I guess the other thing that that whole line of thought brought uh, made occurred to me was what does Huma Abedin do about the fact that, you know, she's been talking in Vogue and other places about how Anthony Weiner is basically like the full time stay at home dad for their son. And now he's done something like super creepy, if not borderline illegal. And uh, <laughs> that seems like. Again, it's hard for me not to see it from her point of view that, you know, this was one thing he seemed to be doing well, or at least she was praising him for. And now don't you have to reassess leaving your kid alone with this guy? Well, that's the question of whether this becomes grounds for. And this is who. Yeah, I just I, I mean, want to move on say, from like, this. <laughs> Can we move on from this? <laughs> also, she might yes, be moving to Washington. We've made you deeply and, uncomfortable. Uh, wait, do, I'm going to get you. There's one more question, which is actually what I thought we were going to talk about, which is, is <laughs> that why is this a political story? Is it's this not, a political story? It's not. It's not. Oh, it's not. And that New York Times story about like casting the shadow over the Clinton campaign it's not. irritated me so much. They were just like making up some connection. Yes. Uh, and right. here's the reason it's not. It's not because there are 86 billion other things that are going to affect the election, more, all of which have more directly to do with the people, with the way people think about voting. And there's a whole lot of time between now and when the voting begins, when you're talking in the context of what actually could change and affect an election. There's not much time in terms of the stuff you have to do to win an election, but, th- but in terms of like pieces of news that could actually shift and change the election, no. All right, now, John, we're, we're going to pause for one second while John goes and scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Emily. Wait, I have one more thing to say, which is that I wonder if journalists everywhere should really think about what they're doing every time they type the phrase, casts a shadow or throws a cloud, whatever the verb is that goes with cloud. Like, essentially, aren't you saying, I have no evidence here of a real connection, but I want you to think something yeah. bad is going or on. Or raises here. questions. Um, raises raises troubling questions, questions. I object to less. Raises troubling questions. I guess you're right, except that one seems a little more like, a little less sinister. Anyway, um, conventions of ours. All right. We're now back. We've used mouthwash. 
I don't feel like our face off. John, 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 John has changed into a new, (laughs) new white shirt uh, so that we can, we can start our next segment afresh. There are other things at stake in November besides the White House, notably for our purposes today, the Senate, where the Republicans are defending 24 seats and the Democrats only 10. Almost all of the vulnerable seats, uh, the seats that are being contested are held by Republicans of the 11, I think the 11 most competitive races, or maybe the 11 competitive races, all but Nevada or or Nevada. Nevada. I was about to correct that myself. All but Nevada are currently GOP held. So if the Democrats win five of those and Hillary Clinton wins the White House, they will control the Senate. If they win six, they will control it. No, it's four and five. A four... Four. If they win four and she wins the White House, then the 50-50 tie is okay. broken by Tim All right. And if they win five, they they control it anyway. So, John, what, is it, what does it look <laughs> like today? Well, the, the seats that look like the Democrats are going to pick up are in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana, although Ron Johnson, the Republican incumbent in, in Wisconsin, is running against Russ Feingold, is insisting as we tape that the polls are changing and things are getting better for Ron Johnson. But as of right now, most people think that Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana are gone. So that's three of the four they would need should Hillary Clinton uh, win the election. The next ones to look at are Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, um, and North Carolina. New Hampshire, Kelly Ayotte, the incumbent, is is in like double digits, I think, in the polls. Trailing or trailing? Trailing, trailing, trailing. And Donald Trump is is in even worse shape in New Hampshire. I mean, one of the things to look at in the Senate races is the uh, how tight is the link. It seems to be pretty tight there. Ayotte is able to break a little bit away from Trump, but not much. The mid case is Burr in North Carolina, Toomey in, in Pennsylvania, and Ayotte in, in New Hampshire. Those are the three Republican incumbents. They are all in kind of weak states, but fighting and possibly could use the powers of incumbency and other things to stay on. Pennsylvania is the most fascinating case to me because it's a state that Trump is contesting. Republicans always sort of make a play for Pennsylvania, but they haven't won since 88. This time there is this interesting question that will be adjudicated in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Iowa, which is can Trump in states where there is an older, whiter, less college-educated electorate, does he have a chance to take Democrats on? He's pro- he might very well win Iowa, which has more older voters than even Florida, uh, and he's doing well in the polls there. He's not doing as well in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So why is that important? Because Pat Toomey will maybe get swamped by a Clinton victory in Pennsylvania. But in Ohio, Rob Portman has totally broken out of the Trump problem. Um, Ohio's a state where the governor is in basically open conflict with Trump. The state party, which has close ties to the governor, are, you know, very much at odds with Trump. And Trump's not doing so hot in Ohio, particularly in in the Columbus area. He's having real issues. But Rob Portman is doing great, doing well, doing so well, the Democratic Senatorial Committee looks like they're moving away from Ted Strickland, his challenger. So that may be the best example, other than Florida, of a candidate who's able to totally break three of the contagion that a lot of Republicans were worrying about with Trump. So those states where this breakage may be happening to help the Republican incumbents would be Ohio, Missouri, Florida, and maybe Arizona. So the Arizona question is really interesting. If, if the Clinton people are really making a play for Arizona, putting ads on the air to take on Trump, can John McCain survive that? Is the theory with Ohio where Portman is ahead of Strickland and Portman is running far ahead of Trump, is the theory that these are voters who will come out and they'll split ticket vote? Yeah. Or that they won't vote in the presidential or that they actually will vote for Trump when 
push comes to shove. It's, this it, does is anyone all know? fascinating. One of the great things about Ohio that we will know is because of early voting, the campaigns will start to know what's happening. They've all targeted particularly their split ticket. Um, and this is why, by the way, just one quick interjection, when Republicans were saying, oh, the RNC should cut Trump loose and spend its money on the Senate races. First of all, they couldn't do it because Trump's the one raising all the money for the party. So you can't cut loose the guy paying the bill. Secondly, Rob Portman wants both Trump voters to turn out and Rob Portman voters to turn out. And so what he will do is in the month before Election Day, in which early voting can take place, he will target all those voters who are nervous about Trump, but like Rob Portman. So these are your college educated women basically outside of Cincinnati and Columbus. He knows who they are and he's been he's been mailing them and he will know whether they're voting for him pretty quickly. I mean, you know, some may not tell his his people the truth when they come to the door, but he'll get a pretty good sense if he's in trouble and he'll be able to pour on all of his effort into that and then basically hope that the Trump voters who turn out, uh, let's say, on the eastern, you know, Mahoning Valley part of of Ohio, where where Republicans say Trump may have some opportunity to grab Democrats or grab. And by Democrats, I mean people who actually would have otherwise voted for the Democrat. I don't mean people who call themselves Democrats and always vote for the Republicans because that won't do it. Or people who haven't participated in the process before. Can Portman get any of those people? But because of early voting and all of the targeting that's now available, it's possible to kind of monitor as it's happening. And, and to your original question, David, figure out whether you can get both and and kind of split it so that you can get both. And the only way you'd be kept from doing that in Ohio is if Ted Strickland and the Democrats were there to say, aha, Rob Portman is you know trying to be both things. But if they're pulling out of the race, then it means Portman's found a way to beat Democrats from doing that. Emily. My sense of these things is that if once it breaks in one direction, it kind of breaks in one direction everywhere. If there's a strong Hillary sweep and a sweep that the Democrats will likely take not just four of these seats, but maybe seven, eight, nine of these seats. And similarly, if Trump, you know, makes a stage of a huge comeback and there's a there's a swing backwards that the Democrats could not take the Senate at all. Um, is that your view of it as well? Well, that's certainly what has happened historically, is that you see that coattails effect and you don't see people splitting their tickets. There's this part of me that, just for the sake of kind of respect for the intelligence of the voters, wants to think that this year could be different, that, pe- that you know, Republican voters could re- reject Donald Trump, but but stick with their, you know, much more likable uh, moderate candidates like Rob Portman. There's no reason to desert Rob Portman because you don't, right? It's like there's a space there to make that different kind of choice. And so I'm intrigued by that possibility. And I actually think it would just be, I don't know, maybe John, do you think this is naive or dumb of me? But it, maybe it would be a healthy political development for strategists to take seriously the notion of people splitting their tickets because it might change how we think about these coattail effects. It would be super helpful for America if there was more split ticket voting, but I, don't, I think we're in a special case here with with Donald Trump. And meaning that even if there is split ticket voting, it won't translate. It won't or last. meaning that it won't even happen this time. No, I mean it could happen this yeah. time, uh, but if it happens this time, it won't change the the larger movement the towards not splitting tickets. Uh, we're going to so, have to write off this whole election as some sui generis moment that means nothing. It's like the, you know, Supreme Court decision in Bush versus Bush, Gore, yeah. the really weird use. Of, it's like Although, this weird use of equal protection, like the one time only ride on the, you know, roller coaster. You don't get to redeem it ever again. I wonder if that's true, though. It's a really interesting question. We will only know the answer to once we get closer to election day and then obviously only know the answer to when events actually happen. But 
that's like stating the super obvious. But I guess the reason I think it's interesting at this preliminary moment is I think there will be Donald Trump and Trumpism and the Trump voter will be part of the conversation for a really long time as people try to figure out just your point, Emily, which is how much was was special in particular to him and how much is still – I mean the vote – the Trump electorate is still going to be out there whether he wins or loses and somebody's got to figure out what to do with that electorate. And I've had some really great conversations with Democrats who admit uh, – and Mr. J.M. is one of our longtime listeners is one of them who made the case Democrats have left this part of the electorate, the part that feels disappointed by and shut out from the – current economic moment that they the democrats have a job to speak to that portion of the electorate and haven't as well that's a challenge to democrats in the trump coalition as well as a challenge to republicans who have to deal with all parts of the of the trump coalition and so i think we'll talk about the trump voter and trump coalition and trump effects even if he loses for a really long time even though what you say is true which is that like there won't be lots and lots of follow-on trumps because he's got a special set of skills that only he has John, one other question about this. I, as I was reading up on this, I noted, my God, the reason the Democrats are going to win the Indiana Senate seat is that Evan Bayh has been reanimated. Evan Bayh, who left the Senate swearing he would never, lobby never lobby and then immediately lobby. <laughs> it's true. Uh, that Evan Bayh is- Didn't he is, also give a big dramatic speech about like- Yes, yeah, yeah, yes exactly. Yeah. No, I, there's, okay, okay. I just, we I have, said I was the same guy. Yeah. We have one particular listener who is in a constant state of fury and agitation about the Evan Bayh thing and who, for whom this has probably been a life-changing event and who's no doubt like standing out in front of Bayh's house heckling no, him. Like that. Bayh was also one of the people who, when Howard Dean was on his ascent in 2004, basically said, you know, we can either be a real party or be a party of the crazy left. There are a lot of things that the liberals in the party right. remember about him. Let me finish my sentence, though, which was also <laughs> Ted, Ted Strickland, uh, who, who was the former governor of Ohio, running for Senate, is 75 years old, I think. And then in Pennsylvania and in, I think, in Nevada. Oh, you're going to say a mean thing about Katie McGinty. I don't know. Like, I don't know. But, no, 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 no. I don't, very, I, don't very, I don't know very much about her. Is that they're, they're running kind of newbies in other states. Their bench is weird. And the people they're running are kind of weird. They're these old timers and then they're these newbies and they don't have a good pipeline. And I wonder how they imagine fixing that. If only there were someone on the show who'd written about the Democratic pipeline. <laughs> right. Although I recall that when I did that, I just called you guys and asked what I should write about. Um, yeah. So when I was writing about the Democratic pipeline a few months ago um, with regards to Kamala Harris's Senate candidacy in California, Okay, so the obvious thing to say is that the Republican takeover of many state houses in before the 2010 census was like a huge thing because they gerrymandered a lot of formerly Democratic congressional seats out of existence. They changed the composition of state legislatures. That has had a lot of impact and hurt the Democrats. But there was this other dynamic that I think we've talked a little bit about before, which is this question of you have African-American, Hispanic, and Asian candidates who rise to power traditionally in urban centers where there are more minority voters or in congressional districts which have sizable minority populations. And then there is doubt among party traditionalists about whether they can translate their appeal statewide. Um, and they have trouble sometimes raising money, showing that they can be appealing candidates to a whiter statewide electorate. 
I think I talked before about Stacey Abrams, who's the minority leader in Georgia. And, you know, Georgia is a state that's turning purple. And Stacey's been part of trying to make, I think, a voter registration pilot project happen there to show that you can win as a Democrat by changing your conception of who your electorate is. You can register, you know, more people and try to go after a more liberal but not a strong voting population as opposed to constantly trying to move to the center and appeal more to, you know, white, moderate, registered voters. So that's a, just a really interesting dynamic to me. I, you know, I, I'm sort of agnostic about what, how much it's going to work, but it seems like a kind of crucial premise for the Democrats to keep testing. Okay, let's leave it there. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're... I don't even know. I've run out of things to say. I've run out of, of, of cocktail points to make. I did see some really weird-looking uh, artisanal vodka in, a, in the Union Square Green Market this week. So maybe... Weird in the sense that the bottle was weird-looking? It, just, it, had, it had been made from stuff, and I was like, it? I didn't know you could make it from that. I didn't know you could make vodka from that. <laughs> and now I can't even remember what it was. Like what? Shoe polish? I don't remember. No, no I think it's not. It was not like a rot gut. No, but if you, if you, Emily, had bought that delicious-looking artisanal vodka and were stirring yourself a vodka tonic to sip on the uh, Bazelon porch, what would you be chattering about? I was super interested this week in a local election in Duval, Nassau, and Clay counties in Florida. This was the state attorney Angela Corey and the public defender Matt Shirk who I wrote about for the Times Magazine last week, they were both up for election and they both lost and they got stomped. This is part of a kind of small wave across the country in terms of elections for state attorney or district attorney in which for the first time that I can remember, there are now eight or 10 races in different states where um, a prosecutor who was very aggressive, who was, you know, made tough on crime, his or her mantra has gotten booted out of office. This is actually part of what we were just talking about, because one thing that's happening here is an awakening among Democrats. This is an office that holds a lot of power, that holds promise in terms of being a stepping stone politically, and that is worth investing in and spending money on. And so there was an interesting story this week in Politico about how George Soros has been funding um, some of these, quote, reform candidates. So now what interests me is like, okay, so what happens next? So we have new prosecutors in Chicago and Cleveland and a couple places in Mississippi and Louisiana and now in Florida. And how are they going to change how those offices are run, what the culture of them is like? Are we going to see um, real changes? Cool. Jean de Carson. <clears throat> My chatter is about a story that was um, in the New York Times, a uh, uh, newspaper published uh, in America last week. Uh, and But I, since I wasn't on the show, I just did my cocktail chatter to myself, so I'm now doing it in public, which is this story in the New York Times about uh, in, an Indian movie idol who's known – I'm going to totally butcher his common name as um, Rajnikath. He is such a, an idol that when his – he's 65 years old and when his movies come out, his – 
devotees bathe pictures of him in thousands of gallons of milk as a sign of devotion, which is a similar way that they show a devotion to Hindu idols. The problem is that when his movies come out, the milk becomes in such demand for the purposes of bathing his pictures that it's stolen from markets, <laughs> resulting in, which isn't funny, but resulting in shortages that actually endanger malnourished children. So the authorities are trying to – they've asked the actor uh, Rajnika to tell his supporters to stop this and do – you know, give blood and donate organs instead or do something to be – to make use. And there's – it's not – it doesn't appear to be working. And then in some cases, uh, his fans steal milk that's left out outside of um, shops. One of the defenders of this practice said, nobody says anything about milk used in temples. For us, we can see God in him. So, so why should we stop? Anyway, in an excellent piece of reporting in the New York Times. Check it out. I have a double chatter. First is um, some classic Plotzian log rolling, which is that if you're in Washington on September 29th, I'm going to be at Sixth and I with my fellow Atlas Obscurians, Josh Ford, Dylan Thuris, and Alan Morton. And we're going to be talking about the Atlas Obscura book. And it's going to be awesome. And I really hope you can come out and join us. At What's that date again, David? September 29th at 6th and I. You can get tickets for this at atlasobscura.com slash bookdc, atlasobscura.com slash bookdc, or email me if you, you know, if you uh, can't figure that part out. It's going to be great. The book is awesome and cool. And, and Josh and Dylan and Ella are great storytellers. So uh, please come on out and join us on September 29th. And can I just say that in uh, in Amazon, whenever I look at my book sales, it always says customers who bought this item also bought. And then that's Atlas, Atlas Obscura. So I've been waiting oh, for the public. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. That's waiting really for nice. the publication of uh, Atlas Obscura, which I purchased back on July 9th, Amazon is now telling me. So, uh, yeah, the book drops on September 20th officially. So John pre-ordered. Yes. My real chatter, though, is about a TV show on Netflix that I'm watching. I think I chattered about a Netflix show last week, but I the just get down? stumbled on. I did, week. but I've stumbled onto another Netflix show, which is fantastic. Go Netflix. It's called Last Chance You. It's a documentary series. Oh, I've been hearing about this. It's amazing. It's about the football team at East Mississippi Community College in Scuba, Mississippi, a town so remote you can't even believe it. But this team is a keeps winning the National Community College football championship because it recruits kids who've had huge problems, who've washed out at big schools and who just need a they need a year to sort of restore their name and reputation. And so they're great players playing in this podunk place with a, a coach who's kind of amazing, kind of a monster. The players are it's it's an intimate, beautiful, fascinating, beautifully filmed uh, series. And um, my wife, Hannah, who can't stand football, is not interested in it, loves it. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Last Chance You on Netflix. How long, if you were to spend eight hours a day watching all the TV and film you would <laughs> like to watch, would it take you to complete You would that never mission? finish it. You'd never because the new production of of, yeah, it's amazing. I have a list a mile long. I I do too. I just feel like that list is so long. It's it. uh, I can't watch anything for the palsy that I'm put in by trying to choose. Yeah, maybe you should cut out face and name. Try that. That'll like (laughs) save you an hour a week. You should feel like you're in a meadow of flowers and just pick one and go with it and don't worry about the other ones until you have time to get. That's true. There are some that I've you know I've never watched Breaking Bad. 
I, I, you're not supposed to admit that in really? polite society. Wow, that's a crazy one to skip. Right. Yeah, I started watching Breaking Bad, and the and the beginning of it was so it was right. We had the <laughs> kids. Uh, we were the, we were still on the on the uh. well, when the kids were little. We just couldn't watch anything traumatic because we were I don't know. We just were had gotten so jittery and uh, like we just we couldn't take the initial first few scenes of uh, Breaking Bad. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Annie Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, which is a great Twitter feed. I, I, I follow it participate with it our email address is gabfest at slate.com and you should please subscribe to the gabfest and itunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there for emily bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz we will talk to you next week <laughs>